Good afternoon. You're listening to Praxis here on KYRS, Thin Air Community Radio. I'm your host, Taylor, and today I'm going to be live on the phone with someone who is coming to town later this week for a great event. I'm just pulling up that phone, um, and I should be on with Pastor Terry Kylo. Uh, Terry, can you hear me out there? I sure can. Great, and I can hear you, so that's good news. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So if you wouldn't mind, I haven't said much about the event that's happening this week yet, and I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the roadshow that you're on, who you'll be here with, and what folks can expect. Yeah, sure. So the roadshow is called the Faith Over Fear Roadshow, and uh, my friend Anila Afzali, who's a Harvard-trained lawyer and a Muslim activist, uh, in from the Redmond and Seattle area. And I've been doing about, uh, we've now done 25 of these roadshows across the state, many of them in more rural areas, but also some in some more urban areas, trying to help people, A, first meet a Muslim, and B, um, understand the, the anti-Muslim bias that is sort of baked into the cake of this country, to understand the anti-Muslim hate groups, that are basically infecting our our political life and dividing us from one another, and what we can do about it. And uh, we do that show in about about you know two hours, and we do some live Q and A as part of that, so that people can get their questions answered. That's great. So the one here is going to be Thursday, October third, at six p.m. at the Wolf Auditorium out at Gonzaga. For folks listening, um, it is free of charge, I believe. It certainly is. Okay, great. Education, um, accessible. Good. We love that. Um, so I guess just to back up, can you share a little bit about about yourself and your own journey into this work um, as a pastor and just as a as a person? Yeah, so I, I grew up uh, in La Crosse, Washington, which is south of Spokane, about 80 miles. And um, when I grew up, there was only one person of color in the community. Um and, and I should say that I, I grew up, you know, with kind of a form of white supremacy uh, that basically believed that white people were more important than others. And, and I remember even being out at church and hearing after we had sung the, the, the song, you know, Jesus Loves Little Children, um, that I went out, I got, I got older, I heard some of the men in the parking lot, you know, using racial slurs. And upon reflecting on that, I realized now that if you benefited from the land, that was taken from the native peoples of this of this country. Um, if you benefited from them, you kind of have to dehumanize them a bit. And once you dehumanize one group, you can move on to another and to another. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I, I've kind of gone on a on a journey myself, uh, moving to Tacoma to to do schooling, moving to Chicago to go to seminary, meeting a whole lot of different folks. And about uh, seven years ago, I met uh, a Muslim man. And we began to do some dialogue and then some interfaith dialogue with the Buddhists. And then eventually we were invited to a military town in on Whidbey Island uh, to kind of counter some of the anti-Muslim bias there. And it was a kind of an amazing evening. About 90 people showed up. It was very powerful. I didn't know what I was doing, but my Muslim friend was great. And we did like four or five more of those. And then um, after the Paris attack, my friend was telling me about all the microaggressions and, and the aggressions and, and um, vandalism that was happening at Muslim-owned businesses, what school kids were facing. 
And we both decided to put on a larger event in Linwood. And this is in December of 2015. And uh, in between announcing that event and it happening, the San Bernardino attack happened. And then Donald Trump announced that um, that he wanted a complete and total shutdown of all Muslims coming into the country. Mm-hmm. And so we had 450 people come to this event. We had media. We had to have police because there was a lot of tension in the air. And um, the event went really well. And the next morning... I got emails from pastors all over Western Washington asking if we could host an event like put on an event like that at their place. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a Lutheran. Um, I know what Lutherans did and didn't do for our German, uh, German Jewish neighbors, you know, in the 1930s and 40s. I know, I know the, the courageous acts that some Lutherans engaged in, and I know that a lot of Lutherans didn't know their Jewish neighbors and didn't stand with them. And so it was really kind of a gut check for me. Like, am I, am I just going to have put on one nice event or am I, am I in it for more? And, uh, and so I began this journey uh, and got so busy putting on events and hosting conversations and helping people to sort of calm down and get to know their Muslim neighbors um, that I actually had to resign from the churches I was serving in order to do this essentially full-time, and I've been doing that now for about three years. Wow, and that's through Neighbors in Faith. Yeah, so I started that organization um, basically without knowing where my money was coming from. I just knew I had to do it, Mm -hmm. and I've had a lot of good support from the Lutherans and Episcopalians and Methodists and Presbyterians and Unitarians, and there's been Latter-day Saints churches that have been very helpful and supportive. I've had atheists and agnostics be supportive. I mean, it's been really great. And we've now done, at this point, um, I've done 65 major public events around the state, and again, many times in smaller communities. And then I've done another, you know, something on the order of 200 other either sermons or classes or presentations or trainings, um, often with Muslims, but not always, uh, to try to create more allies for our Muslim neighbors and help them understand how to be good allies. Mm-hmm. And. So having done all these events and then looking toward this one, this is the first time that you're touring kind of east of the Cascades, is my understanding. It's, it's a, so we have done uh, Yakima. Oh, okay. And, and we did one in the Tri-Cities. We did a very small one in, uh, in Moscow, Idaho, with the Student Association oh, cool. there, the Muslim student. And then, um, uh, and then we did go to the PGALS uh, conference last January when it was all nice and snowy. And we had a good time meeting a lot of those folk there. But we're really um, trying, after kind of a little bit of a break, you know, because these roadshows take a lot out of you. Um, there's a lot of emotion, and, and mm-hmm. you, there's people in the crowd that are very angry and, and afraid, you know. And, it, and you, so, you, so after a little bit of a break, we're starting up again. And we're going to be going to lots of different communities, trying to go to Walla Walla, go back to Pullman, maybe go to Colfax, Moses Lake. We want to go to Wenatchee. Um, and uh, and then on the western side of the state, we want to get out to Port Angeles and Aberdeen and get out to some of the smaller communities. Because the problem is that Muslims make up about 1% of the population, but they're very highly concentrated in urban and suburban areas. So the reality is that most people in most counties have never met a Muslim. And so all they know of Muslims is what they see in the news, what they see in the movies, what they see you know, from political candidates 
and in an evening, you know, dramas. And so a lot of them are understandably afraid. Mm -hmm. Sure. So what, I guess, you, you touched on it a little bit talking about the past tours. I guess I'm really curious, what's something that you hear over and over again from participants in these talks? Um, and what's something that's surprised you uh, over the time well, that you've been giving them? Yeah, so, oh my goodness. So, we, we first of all, we always get four questions. Um, and that was part of what drew me into this, is that I realized that everywhere I went and I did a presentation and we had Q&A afterwards, there was always four questions and they were almost always framed the same way. Um, and the topics of those questions are Islam and women, uh, Islam and peace, Islam and democracy, uh, Islam and other religions. But everywhere we go. And and those questions, those issues kind of get framed, you know, in about 15 or 20 different ways. Um, so the questions sometimes vary, but we're almost always asked something about, say, Sharia. Um, and, and people like, like they think they know what it is. Um, or, or, we, or from more progressive folk, we tend to get questions around Islam and women, where it's assumed that wearing a hijab is somehow inherently oppressive. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, and, and of course, in our, in our roadshow, we, we respond to those four issues and further, um, you know, especially in the Q&A, but, but in our presentations we do as well, both trying to model uh, for allies and for Muslims, but also to respond to people who are persuadable but are still kind of afraid. The thing that was super surprising to me when I went out to these, and this has maybe happened, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I, I bet you a quarter of the time, someone walks up to me, very kind, very gentle person, they walk up to me and they tell me that it took an act of courage for them to come because they were so afraid of Muslims that they thought they might be harmed. Wow. And that's just, that's, I know, it's just amazing to me to see that level. And so part of what, what all of this has, has come to, I've come to understand is that, is that the hate groups that generate fear and hatred toward Muslims and, and other groups too, politicians that do that, um, media sources and, and entertainment media that do that are not simply creating an oppressive atmosphere toward Muslims. They're actually lodging fear in the heart of everyday American human beings. Mm-hmm. And so part of our work is, is, is to help them become free of that fear so they can begin to recognize, and this is why we came up with the term, their neighbors. And if they have a, if they have a faith tradition, like you know, a lot of people are Christian. Not everybody, certainly, but if they're Christian, they can they can begin to understand Muslims as their neighbors in faith, as people who um, they can watch different shows and have different beliefs and and root for different teams. But you can also ask for a cup of sugar if you need it, mm-hmm. and and, uh, and to see the the similarities, right? I mean, even. Theologically, yeah. historically, all of those four questions you presented uh, could be fairly, yeah. fairly posed toward Christianity <laughs> as well, right? I mean, yes, indeed, yeah. and not just historically, but in our current present moment. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as as uh, you know, as someone who, and often I, I quote actually George W. Bush, um, uh, former president, um, by saying that we often judge others by their worst actions, and we judge ourselves by our best intentions. He said that. You know, wow. Yes, he did. He, he said that <laughs> in an event in Dallas. Okay. Uh, and uh, after someone had 
had engaged in some ideologically motivated violence. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and that's, and of course, that's me trying to reach out and make sure that we're, we're messaging and speaking to sure. people across the ideological spectrum um, as, we, as we do that kind of messaging. Mm-hmm. And, of course, to Christians, then I would say, well, you know, it's important to um, take the log out of our own eye before we, we try to take the speck out of somebody else's. Mm-hmm. And, and so, of course, one of, my, one of my tasks as a pastor in these kind of conversations is to remind people about, you know, the, the human problems that all that all communities share, including those that have high aspirations, like like you know Christians and and uh, Muslims and our Jewish neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what has I guess I'm also curious. I'm, I'm curious about a lot with this work, but um, sure. Your when we talk about allyship, I think there's some really yeah. interesting and complex conversations going on around that right now. Oh, Something we oh, talk man. about on the show. <laughs> um, yeah. What. What have you learned and and from being, I mean, you're not acting as a representative of the Muslim community. Obviously, no. you're going around with Anila Afsali. Exactly. Um, but what what has that looked like? What has that dynamic looked like between the two of you and kind of between these two yeah. communities? Well, I, I just, I really re- love that question. And I, I just want to say, Taylor, that um, I still have a lot more to learn. Like mm-hmm. there, there is, this is so complex. Um, I want to say that at first, like, you know, there, there was a little bit of like, you know, I've come to love a lot of Muslims and, 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 and I'm not going to let them just get bullied around. Right. And that comes from real deep in, you know, um, I almost tear up when I say it even right now. So there, there is kind of a, a, an urge to, 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 uh, to protect and stand beside and, and, and help. But um, but that urge, you know, can very easily become about the person being an ally mm-hmm. and not become what actually might help uh, our, 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 our Muslim neighbors. And so what I try to do is use my cisgender white, white person, a white Christian pastor wearing, you know, black shoes and a clergy collar and mm-hmm. a suit. Use that privilege to create space for Muslim voices, because I can find a, a place to speak anywhere in, in almost any community in the state. There's somebody there who will invite me in, mm-hmm. and then I bring Muslims with me, and I introduce, and I step out of the way, and I and they and they speak, and that's what's transformative. And then I can come come beside, and then repeat some of the same things, share some things from the Christian perspective. Uh, and from the American perspective, frankly, about why it's important to stand with our Muslim neighbors. But then here's here's two key points. Um, first is that when Anila and I, or or myself and other Muslims, are engaging in Q and A, it's always a, a very we have to use a lot of care in who answers the question, who answers first, who answers second. Sometimes, and, and it's and it's always got to be. I, my, in my mind, in my in, even in my in my instincts, I'm trying to think about about how can I um, best support my Muslim neighbor, and sometimes that's by not speaking at all. Mm-hmm. So, when we were in Spokane for the bar association meeting, and I was I was answering questions with a another lawyer that I work with sometimes, who's a public defender in Seattle, and a question was asked about about the hijab and and dress codes for women. 
And she, of course, as is appropriate, answered that question. But as an ally, it was my responsibility, I thought, to answer the bias behind the question and to state that men also have a dress code in Islam, mm-hmm. which almost nobody in the room knew. And then, and then every time I get through it with an event, uh, and I work with, work with many, many different Muslims across, across the state, but especially with, with Anila, every single time you know, we, we, we get together afterwards and do a debrief, and this is my question. Um, did, I do, did I do something or say something that disadvantaged you today? And um, I want to say that it, like the first, especially 30 times I did this with Muslims, the answer was always yes. Yes, you did. Mm-hmm. And then here's what you did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I just want to say, like, um, I think part of being a, an ally who intends well includes the, the necessity of feeling pain. Like, you've got to be, you got to love enough to be willing to hurt. Yeah. And every single time they told me that I screwed up in some way, <laughs> like, it hurt bad. But then... You know, but then um, I would learn and and grow and and read more and understand more. And, um, you know, and now it doesn't happen too often, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but I always ask the question anyway, because because Muslims know, like inherently living in this country, like all of the pressures and oppressions that are on them. Mm-hmm. I can study it. um, I can I can have empathy and compassion for it, but I don't know it. The reality is, I can take my collar off and take my neighbors and faith badge off my chest and go go into Safeway and nobody knows. Mm-hmm. But my Muslim friend, you know, Anila, when we when we we leave an event, like you know, she walks into Safeway and and she may have someone yell at her for wearing a hijab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's about kind of understanding your place, being willing to learn, being willing to hurt. And uh, and just keep that keep that keep inviting that that process of listening mm-hmm. um, in a way that that that, you, that the people you're you're allying with trust you to be willing to learn. Sure, and I think even the process of of you initiating that by asking um, is is an important step because you know maybe if you hadn't done that after the fifteenth time you screwed something yeah. up, they might have just stopped doing it with you and you might have never (laughs) known what had happened and this partnership would have ceased and you would have been able to make up your own story about why you know and i think that happens all the time right yeah i think it does too and i you know and so and and part of it would be that it would be easy to be grateful for what i'm doing you know well at least he was trying right Mm -hmm. but but the reality is um we we want to actually change hearts and minds Mm mm-hmm we want to actually change the, the condition um, of Islamophobia or anti-Muslim bias. Uh, we want to build more allies and allies that know how to respond to questions in a positive way uh, and not get trapped in the negative framework of the question. Um, and, and doing that is, um, is an art, and there's a little bit of science to it. And I think, um, and, and, and what I want to say about that, too, is you, you only always have a batting average. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's never been one event where I said, "Well, I nailed that one." You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, not one. You know, at all. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Praxis on KYRS. I'm talking by phone with Pastor Terry Kylo. I'm getting your last name right, correct? 
Yeah, you did. Okay, good, good. Okay, just making sure. Um, He'll be here along with Anila Afzali um, from MAPS, and um, he is joining us from Neighbors in Faith. Um, There's a lot of co-sponsoring organizations on the event I'm looking at. But they'll be here Thursday night, October 3rd, at 6 p.m. at the Wolf Auditorium at Gonzaga. Um, And I have that Facebook event linked on my show page at facebook.com slash Praxis Radio, P-R-A-X-I-S-R-A-D-I-O. So um, I'm really interested to hear, I'd love to ask you a little bit about a language question, because you just said Islamophobia or anti-Muslim bias, and I see both of those those on your materials uh, when I was reading up online. Can you can you speak to that a little bit and even just the the characterization of anti-Muslim bias as a as a phobia? Yeah, right. So um, you know, when I first entered into this kind of field, uh, the 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 term of, of the trade, you know, um, countering anti-Muslim bigotry and bias was Islamophobia, and it still is, really. Um, Recently, some of the anti-Muslim hate groups and especially some of their Christian allies have been pushing back on Islamophobia uh, as if to say that um, it's not a phobia if there's actually a threat, right? And so when we, when we go to more um, conservative places, possibly, or, or places where folk haven't met as many Muslims, we tend to shift into anti-Muslim bias instead of the term Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. Because because it, it it just it says essentially the same thing, uh, but it, it isn't quite as we don't get the, the negative reaction immediately from some of some folk that that might be experiencing fear and, and and so right now like Anila and I are actually trying to figure out if we should get rid of the term Islamophobia altogether like we're we're just really wrestling with that mm-hmm. and and I'm not sure where we're going to come down yet. Yeah, yeah, because it it is something something more than. It's not not fear, but it's something more than that. Um, I think as yeah. well. Um, yeah, I, and I think I think it's 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 put in with the second term, um, which is the Islamophobia industry, mm-hmm. and and that again is a somewhat pejorative, you know, framing um, of about thirty to forty main uh, anti-Muslim hate groups in the country who make Americans afraid, and. Uh, and they actually are very effective at it, as it's always easier to create fear than it is to create trust or love, you know. Um, and and they're backed up by a whole lot of other organizations and politicians, and and uh, and so the Islamophobia Islamophobia is then created by the Islamophobia industry in part. And uh, so the terminology is it's never perfect. You know, anti-Semitism is not a perfect term either. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so sometimes movements just kind of get stuck with these terms yeah. and, and we have to figure out, you know, how to move forward. Mm-hmm. So which brings us to um, you cite in the in the description for the event, it cites this figure, uh, $30 million a year yeah. spent yeah. by anti-Muslim hate groups. Um, can you yeah. can you kind of unpack that a little bit for listeners and talk about who some of these groups maybe that they have heard of might be yeah. and those they might not have heard of? Yeah, sure. So. So, um, uh, you know, a resource that people can go to is www.islamophobianetwork.org. Um, excuse me, .com, islamophobianetwork.com. 
And there they can read a report that was done looking at the publicly available records uh, of, of, these, of these organizations. And in that report, they described that there's about 34 major ones, that many of them started around 2008. Um, and, and they spend a lot of money, um, probably closer to $40 million a year. We're trying to be a bit conservative, so we're, we're clear, um, and, and we're well within the truth. Um, but one group uh, that, of course, uh, a chapter was started by Representative Matt Shea, in the Spokane Valley is called Act for America. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bridget Gabriel is the one that started that. I have a photo in my presentation um, of of her standing in the in the front porch of the of the White House. Um, and so these groups are are really wired in another with with our national security sort of apparatus. Uh, one group, especially the Center for Security Policy, it's called. Um, had actually Mike Pompeo on a number of their radio shows, who is our current Secretary of State. Uh, um, uh, Act for America gave Mike Pompeo an award in 2016. And when, during his confirmation hearing, uh, Senator Cory Booker asked him about his connection to these, you know, Southern Poverty Law Center identified hate groups. Um, and the Anti-Defamation League also calls many of these groups hate groups as well. Um, hate Watch does as well. Um, when when he asked Mike Pompeo if he would uh, you know step back from from his relationship to these organizations, Mike Pompeo was unwilling to do so. John Bolton recently you know resigned as National Security Advisor, actually ran an anti-Muslim hate group called uh, the Gatestone Institute, and you will once in a while see the Gatestone Institute uh, put up little um, news stories that show up on my iPhone time to time. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. So these groups get their funding um, a lot from, A, true believers, you know, and, and, some, and sadly, some Christians who, who really believe that Islam is some kind of threat. Um, and number two, we get, we get people who own stock in the military-industrial complex. Um, and who, who, who realize that if we can scare Americans like crazy about 1.8 billion Muslims on the planet mm-hmm. that we can sell more bombs and more guns. Mm. And, uh, and, and so um, there's just a, a, a lot of money flowing to these folks um, because people are making money on the, you know, after, after the fear is produced. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the military industrial complex, I mean, I think you have to in this conversation, but, yeah. Yeah. but um, I think that that Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bias, even for, for very well-meaning people, has served to yeah. kind of like flatten a whole region and series of regions that we're involved in because yeah. we can kind of group and other everyone who we yeah. believe lives there, even though a wide variety of people live in the wide yeah. variety of places that the U.S. is involved. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then what about, I mean, you talked earlier about entertainment media. There's kind of a soft, it's an, it's not as overt as a group like Act for America, but um, how, how do these biases then kind of just like propagate through, through other media, maybe in a less organized yeah. fashion? Sure, sure. So, so, you know, you have them. So, you know, these hate groups, like they actually do messaging studies. 
so the term Sharia law is a term that they that they they put the word Sharia and law together. Sharia is just a word for Islamic teachings. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it means actually its original wording, its original usage was a path to water. You know, which is necessary for life, in a, especially in a desert community. You know, and and so they they put the word law together with the word Sharia, the word law kind of compulsion and the police officer pulling you over that sort of thing, and they found that that was very successful at scaring people. And so that messaging study then gets shared by uh, by tons of Christian bloggers and pastors across the across the country. It gets shared by about forty or more major news sources. Um, but even even news sources that a lot of like you know progressive people read or listen to are also in on it, um, not necessarily as badly or as blatantly, but you know how often like say on NPR do do they actually have like real life Muslims responding <laughs> to mm-hmm. these questions? Not very often. A study was done by 416 labs that found that the New York Times used adjectives and adverbs that were more harsh toward Muslims and Islam than toward cancer or cocaine. Wow. And so the reality is that we have kind of a national narrative that is, that is told either in hard ways and really, you know, hard exclusionism or told in softer ways that kind of ultimately supports that exclusionism um, by a lot of more, more what are supposed to be more even-handed you know, or even left kind of leaning media outlets. Um, so it's it's really super fascinating. And then a man did a study um, on movies, and he found that of the thousand films in the last century that had Muslim characters, only twelve of the depictions were positive, and fifty six were were neutral, and the rest were negative. <laughs> Wow. So if you're That's... if you're just watching, you know, and then another study was done by a group called Media Tenor, and they found that on CBS, NBC, and Fox News, 50% of the news coverage was about Muslims, and only 5% of it was positive. Wow. You know, so so, you, so you know your regular everyday person, you know, coming home and turning on, you know, the news, and what are they going to see? You know, they're going to get this impression. And then that impression is confirmed and when they watch a movie and it's confirmed by a politician, it's confirmed by their pastor. Yeah. Well, of course, they're, they're going to think that they've got it all figured out. And then fear is going to, you know, basically sit on their, you know, sit in their, on the throne of their heart, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and that's not good for them. And it's certainly not good for, for our democracy. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm, I gotta say, I'm not as familiar with this specific topic as I probably should be having done a lot of, uh, anti-racism work. So where, where, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, anti-Muslim bias, Islamophobia overlap with kind of, I guess we'd say like traditional anti-black and white supremacist racism. Um, but what, what would you say are some key things that people might not understand initially that make them not identical? Well, so, you know, we, we all have benefited from, and, and I'm forgetting her name at the moment, who came up with the term intersectionality. Kimberly you know, that, Crenshaw. Kimberly, yeah, this is so awesome. Um, especially when people use the term correctly, the way she intended. Um, and so 
many Muslims in this country are immigrants. Uh, many of those immigrants are are perceived, you know, to be people of color. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they're wearing, uh, they, they may wear clothing that's of some sort of traditional uh, religious clothing or clothing just from their homeland, their home, home country. Uh, and then they're perceived to be practicing Muslim. Um, and, and part of that, of course, is that, especially in the western part of the state, that they're perceived to be practicing, like, you know, they, they practice a religion. <laughs> and some, some people think poorly of that, you know, which I can understand, given, given the hypocrisy of many, many people of faith. Like, I mm-hmm. get that. Um, and so it really, it really adds up with them. And if you add, you know, if you had being female to that, it just keeps going. So it's just, it's, it's another layer. Um, so we were at a, a, a conference of judges. And the questions there were, like, way better than the normal questions we get. And they were just as bad. Because there were questions like, it looks to me like Islam is foreign. Mm-hmm. Which is really an odd question. Like, that, that is, like, systemic. That, that's an, that to me, was an a, a expression of systemic racism and religionism. Because here we had uh, an assumption that, that, A, Islam has not been around very long in this country, which is not true, since Muslims uh, have been here from the very beginning, fought in the Revolutionary War, and 30% of the African-Americans, the Africans brought here, you know, forcibly from Africa, were, in fact, Muslim. And so, um, you know, so I think all of the categories of, of intrapersonal racism, interpersonal racism, institutional Racism and structural racism apply to Muslims. They just have like another layer of mm-hmm. intersectionality on top of that. Yeah. And I think also folks who are, you know, in the dominant systems of education yeah. and and yeah. religion and upbringing in general and who are white. I mean, mm-hmm. myself included, I, I literally like have spent a ton of my life learning like left politics, uh, yeah. hidden history and everything. And this is the first yeah. time I've ever considered the fact that many enslaved Africans must have been Muslim. Like, yeah. And, and, you know, it's some, just never a part of the narrative. No, it isn't. And then, and then what we, we got to understand. So like, if we're talking about like institutional and structural racism, so my friend Muhammad went through the border crossing, you know, North of Seattle, North of Bellingham. And he came back through, and they thought that he was Mexican because he, he, he kind of he kind of passed for a Mexican person and uh, from a certain region. And, and so he was sitting there in the chair and the guy looked down at, at his driver's license and, and got so nervous he dropped it on the floor. Came back 40 minutes later and the man said to him, you know, you're OK. Uh, we checked you out, uh, but really you should consider changing your name. Whoa. Or another uh, another of, of data like from a 2017 study, found that 42% of Muslim kids experience bullying in schools. 25% of the time, it's by a teacher or an administrator. And just imagine what that, what that sort of you know, institutional and verging on systemic racism and religionism does to that family and to that community. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's, you know, there's, there's many more things like another piece that's like really, really critical is, is that the average sentence sought against a person when they're perceived to be Muslim 
is four times longer than someone who does a similar crime but is perceived not to be Muslim. Um, and the average sentence that's given to someone who is found guilty is five times more if you're perceived to be Muslim than if you're not. Hmm. Uh, which means that, that, you know, that significant human rights and equal protection under the law are being denied our Muslim sisters and brothers. And, and so it isn't, so, so there are, there are, you know, racism in, in all four of its quadrants you know, is, are, are, is taking place. And, and there, there's not a Muslim that I've ever met who's ever said that they don't have to work through some issues with regard to how they see themselves or how they see their, their faith tradition based on the dominant culture's narrative about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when I first began the work, you know, in 2015 especially, it was really hard, um, and this is kind of some good news here, it was really hard to get Islamic centers and mosques to kind of go public and say, hey, we're here. We want to meet our neighbors. We want to form partnerships with, uh, with, you know, with Jewish communities and Christian communities and Hindu and Buddhist and atheist and agnostic groups. Like, it was really hard to get them to come out because, of course, they were experiencing oppression. Um, the, the good thing that has happened in the last three or four years is that um, – is that they've begun to see, at least over here, that they've got friends. They have allies that will stand with them. And one of the most beautiful things that happens, you know, um, you know, after the Christchurch, you know, uh, you know, shooting, you know, it was so horrific. Um, we actually had, I think, 2,500 people show up at the Muslim Association of Puget Sound in solidarity with the Muslim community. And there were lots of rabbis and pastors and Buddhist monks and just everybody you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then when when that terrible thing happened at Easter, and you know some folks you know walk into a church and do the same sort of thing, we had uh, you know I, we kind of participated in in bringing people to the Roman Catholic uh, uh, cathedral in in Seattle. And the Muslim community showed up, and they brought flowers, and they gave a little bouquet of flowers to every Christian that was there. And every time they said, we're sorry that this happened to you. Mm-hmm. And, and that has begun to happen more and more and more. And there's people engaged in partnerships and working on issues in their local community. Um, it's, it's really quite beautiful. Um, working, working across... So that so that so that Muslims are 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 understood to be standing with our Latinx neighbors, are 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 standing with with lots of other marginalized groups when they need support, and and it's really beautiful to see that kind of movement uh, emerging and, and strengthening right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Praxis on KYRS. I'm talking with Pastor Terry Kylo by phone. He will be here on Thursday, October third. Uh, along with Anila Afzali, to talk about neighbors in faith, to talk about um, promoting specifically Christian-Muslim dialogue, but um, dialogue across all groups regarding uh, anti-Muslim bigotry and bias. So again, that Facebook event is linked on 
my Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash Praxis Radio, P-R-A-X-I-S-R-A-D-I-O. Um, and you can also search Bridges Not Walls Spokane, which is one of the co-sponsoring organizations who has it posted there. Um, so, Terry, we've got like 10 minutes left, and I wanted to yeah. make sure that we... Um, I mean, I think all the work is positive, but I think it's easy to um, kind of lean into to all of the things that are wrong that, that constitute mm-hmm. why this issue is worth working on. But um, sure. one thing I'm curious about is um, having done a lot of anti-racism work in progressive communities, mm. sometimes the racism that takes place in progressive communities can be more insidious in a certain way than it yeah. is in a more openly like more comfortably um, race, a, a community that doesn't believe itself to be not racist um, yeah. or, or yeah. has a different belief about that. What are some ways that you think folks who might be listening, the base of the show is largely quite progressive to radical um, who might have some unchecked anti-Muslim bias of their own. How might that be appearing for them? And, and what would you recommend people do? What questions can people ask themselves? How can yeah. people start to do the inner work on that? Right. Yeah, so so part of it is um, part of the source of some of it is an anti-religious uh, sort of bias in some of Western culture that basically blames religion for all sorts of problems, mm-hmm. uh, as if religion is uniquely uh, part of that. Um, and and it's a whole complicated you know kind of topic that deserves about eighteen hours by somebody smarter than me, uh, but um, but. You know, we, we had one of the least religious centuries in, in the history of the world in the last century, and 262 million people were murdered in, in genocide and mass violence. Um, and so sometimes religion just kind of gets blamed for stuff and that, 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 that I think isn't quite fair, like, like for human problems. You know, violence is a human problem. I think religion is, is a, you know, can be a particular attempt to, to tamp it down and to help people see other people as human. I think that's actually what monotheism was intending to do, to say that, that that group over there, even though they speak differently and eat differently and worship differently, they're still human because there's there's one creator that unites us, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it's trying to do. I, I think a lot of Christians uh, treat, you know, kind of go the other way and say, well, you're not really human unless you believe like us. And, and that's, that is very arrogant and I think um, exclusionary. And, it, and, it, and that does lead to violence. But then I've met people who are anti-religious that basically say, you're not really a human being if you're religious, you know. So it's the same kind of human tendency to otherize people coming, coming through. Uh, the, the, the primary issue with, with, uh, that, that we hear from progressive folk is around Islam and women. And especially, uh, especially around, like, Saudi Arabia not allowing people to women to drive until recently, or the notion that women, that women are forced to wear the hijab, uh, as if men aren't. Um, but the reality is that Islam, in 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 you know 1400 years ago, created a, a package of, of rights for women that were unparalleled until very recently. Uh, women were allowed to own property. They were they were given the right to divorce. They were given a share of the inheritance about one-third. And that doesn't sound fair, except that the women were, were not asked to contribute to the ongoing expenses of households. Hmm. So women could have a job, they could, they could earn money in any way that they wanted to, um, 
and uh, they they served in leadership positions in Islam, in Islamic countries. Um, we actually have across the across the world um, majority Muslim countries. There are nearly fifty of them that have had female heads of state. We haven't managed that here yet. I hope we will soon. Yeah. You know, um, and so women were actually given given this sort of this economic advantage to be able to build up uh, generational wealth to equalize the. The, 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 the times when patriarchy completely ruled everything. And so people just don't know this about, about Islam. I, I know a woman who, who became Muslim because of the hijab, because it was her way to say that her body belonged to her. And, and look up here at my face. Like that's, that's the way she talks about it. It was a way to, to it was really intended as a, as a way to help people like recognize the full humanity of, of the person and not to be focused on, on, uh, you know, uh, sort of, you know, checking them out, you know, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, I think another, another whole piece is, is, you know, do Muslims like want to require everyone to be Muslim? And the answer is in Islam that there is no compulsion in religion, that even, even God does not use compulsion uh, to make people uh, believe one way or another, that that is the individual choice of, of the human being. And, and in fact, um, there are other uh, passages that, that talk about if you have a difference with someone, you just say unto me, my religion, unto you, your religion. Like, let's like be human together, <laughs> you know, and, and if we disagree about some stuff that we can't figure out, like, and, and actually there's other passages that say, let's let God figure that out later. <laughs> That's not our problem right now. Um, and so just like we, we, it's not quite right to blame all Christianity for the KKK. It's also not right to let the Taliban or ISIS or whatever be the spokespeople for an entire religion. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to say that, like I've claimed, I think in my, my earlier part of my story, that there's a certain kind of white supremacy that that much of Christianity in this country has been filtered through. And I think that there are, are many Christians, both in the pulpit, like myself, but uh, who, are, who, are, who are trying to repent of that and trying to, trying to, to work to, 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 to change that. Mm-hmm. But it, it's still not quite right to like use anti-Christians to explain Christianity. And it's also not quite right to let anti-Muslims or people who are violent criminals be the ones that we go to for our source about this, this tradition, mm-hmm. which, which really sees, has sim- very deep similarities to Judaism and Christianity that basically says there's, there's two primary things. One is loving God, which means loving all that God has created. It's basically, if, if you're not religious, like it's a way of saying our first dedication is to all of life. Like that's the, that's the way that would be talked about outside of a religious you know sort of tradition. Mm-hmm. And the second one is is to love your neighbor, um, what you love for yourself. And what's the first thing we love? It's being respected and honored as a person, and and uh, being supported in community to be all that we can be. You know, um, have our basic needs met. And um, Islam, for 1.8 billion people you know, kind of guides them in that direction. But what has happened is that in certain countries where human rights have not been, um, 
have not been respected, largely because of colonial and neo-colonial activities on the part of the United States and, and European countries, where there's autocratic rule. And what do autocrats love to do? They love to quote scripture, <laughs> and they love to justify their violence against everyday people on the basis of, of whatever tradition is there. Mm-hmm. And then we end up saying, well, see, the reason that those people are oppressed is because of Islam. No, the reason that they're oppressed is because their entire country was taken over by people who wanted to exploit natural resources, keep people oppressed, keep them without their educations. And then we end up blaming the one thing that has actually kept a lot of a lot of people in those countries, you know, sort of with their heads up, which is the idea that that there is a God who loves them and who they're called to love and they're still called to love their neighbor and they're even called to love their enemy. Uh, which which the Quran states explicitly. Mm-hmm. So I think people on the progressive end of things like tend to be upset about the whole religion thing, about women, but also about uh, you know, people forcing their religion on each other. And mm-hmm. uh, it, the, the Quran explicitly says, hey, don't do that. Yeah. Well, um, the last thing I'm going to ask you is the last thing I ask a lot of people. Um, yeah. Because things are, you know, we know things are kind of bleak right now in a lot of ways. They are. If you look at this issue, we can see how, you know, Representative Ilhan Omar's been treated, um, yeah. others in visible positions like her, and then people who aren't visible. Um, but what is giving you hope uh, in these times, in your work, or in general? Well, you know, I think I, I do agree that, that um, the operative kind of stance toward the time right now is is either denial or despair. Uh, I think those two are kind of expressions of the same thing. You know, there's nothing that can be done. Um, you know, my my faith tradition, you know, encourages me to to trust that there is a that there's a, a brighter future. Um, it also teaches me that that in times of, of incredible oppression, it's really important for people of good faith and goodwill to stand up. You know, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all began in times when there was oppression. You know, in Egypt, for our Jewish neighbors, under Roman occupation in the first century, and and under a really kind of a of a um, an oppressive economic and kind of spiritual system in in Mecca. And so, um, there's something about my tradition that teaches me, like when you're feeling that kind of depth of despair, like that's the time to act. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other, so, so, so to be contrarian in, in, in that sense, right? Notice your despair and then act differently, even though you don't have much to show for it yet. And there are moments, I will say, Taylor, when it's been like tough. Like, if, like I say August was a real down month for me. Um, just like I've been doing all this. I've done like 275 of these kind of speaking engagements, you know, like what difference is this making, you know? And then I went out to an event. Uh, and I saw like a, a fearful person like give up some of her fear, and and she she hugged a, a Muslim woman, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and and I I saw that and I got teary, you know. And if if we can keep spreading those those positive stories, you know, telling positive stories about all the people who serve as doctors in this country who are Muslim. Of, of people of faith and non-faith traditions getting together and supporting each other. 
I, I think that the, the ripple effect of all those stories together will will help us remember ourselves as human beings. Awesome. You know, and I and I um, and even if I don't see uh, results of that right now, like I trust that that I trust that those results will come, even if I don't get to see it. Awesome. Well, if people listening here at the end um, want to have some of this experience, want to see the uh, Faith Over Fear Roadshow here in Spokane, you can go to the Wolf Auditorium at Gonzaga University Thursday the 3rd at 6 p.m. from 6 to 8. Um, You've been listening to this interview with Pastor Terry Kylo, um, who will be talking with with Anila. Can you remind me her last yeah. name? I closed my notes. Anila, Anila Afsali. Perfect. Thank you. Um, the two of them will be speaking on Thursday. If you missed any part of the show and you want to hear it, I will be podcasting it tonight. You can find that link at kyrs.org slash show slash praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S. Um, yeah, that's all the time we have, Terry. I could talk to you about this for a long time, I think. <laughs> Taylor, thank you so much. It's been great conversing with you. Great. And hopefully we'll see you on Thursday night. I hope so, too. All thank right. you. Um, so again, if you just joined us at the end, you can find all those details, um, for the show. Um, I mean about the interview that you might've missed on the show that will be podcast tonight. You can also email me at praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S at org about any shows past, present and future. So, uh, thanks so much for listening and you're listening to KYRS. Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM.